0: You would take your Bibles and open them up to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Acts 10 and 11. Actually, we're going to read chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And this is a bit of a shift. I think I made that decision about an hour and a half ago because the text we are in this morning is quite lengthy. I had planned on reading Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 48, but I did not want to be like Pastor Tim. (laughs) And Acts chapter 11 actually is uh, Peter's retelling of the incident in Acts chapter 10, and so I thought, well, we'll go to Acts 11. Most of the comments I will make this Lord's Day morning throughout the sermon will be focused in Acts chapter 10. So this way we get the whole thing together. Acts chapter 11, and again, our text for the morning, though, though we won't read it all, begins in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and extends through Acts chapter 11, verse 18. I know this is ambitious. But we're going to give it a shot. And so when you arrive in Acts 11 verses 1 through 18, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading and the receiving by God's grace of his word in the book of Acts. Acts. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, this picks up right after the incident with Cornelius. As Luke penned, carried along by the Spirit of God, these words. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Just as on us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The significance of this text is difficult to overstate. It can be highlighted really in a few ways. First, the segment of the story of Acts receives more space than any other portion in the book. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I've not chosen to divide it up because in some sense to divide it really is to lose the coherent whole some have gone so far as to suggest it is the most significant passage in all of Acts. Additionally, what takes place in Acts chapter 10 and is recalled and detailed in Acts chapter 11, namely the Holy Spirit descending on a group of Romans, a group of Gentiles, leads us all the way to the concluding chapter in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, where the Apostle Paul is preaching the kingdom of God, where? in Rome. So this really sets us up for the remainder of the book. Where are we headed? We're headed to Rome with the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. Also, the significance of this text is experienced even this morning as we gather for worship. Now, doubtless, there are some in the room with Jewish roots, but most of us are just plain old Gentiles. Most of us in this room are non-Jews. Without what takes place in Acts chapter 10, we have no hope and are without God in the world. According to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. In our text, God reveals that his people The church of the living God in Christ. His people are not fundamentally identified by ethnicity or by any other identity marker except by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. That's what he continues to do even this morning here at First Baptist Church in Powell Tennessee, almost 2,000 years after this account. Well, We're going to make our way through this text at a very high level, as you might imagine. I thought about keeping you until about 4 p.m., but I thought otherwise. So instead of doing that, we're going to stay at a high level, and we're going to do so in three stages. I think these three stages really do serve to unpack the nature of what's taking place in the text faithfully. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down first. And by the way, if you come to First Baptist Powell on a regular basis, this outline will not be new to you. It's one that I think is quite helpful in many texts of Scripture. First, we are going to look together at the problem addressed in the text. There is a massive problem And it's implied most of the time throughout the text, but there's so much background that has built up to this moment of Acts chapter 10 that I'd like to highlight it for us at the beginning of the sermon. So first, the problem. Second, we will discover, by God's grace, the solution to this problem. The solution to the problem. So first, the problem. Second, the solution. And then third, we're going to seek some ways the Spirit of God is calling us to apply this text, this morning. So we might even call that last stage in your notes application. Problem, solution, and then application of the text to our faith and lives this Lord's Day. Morning. Younger worshipers, there are a couple of items I want you to look for. So If you're visiting this morning, we do this each week. We want to be aware that we have some younger people in the room, some of our children, and we want to teach them to get into the Word of God. Amen, church? We want them to look to the text of Scripture as life-giving because it comes indeed from the life-giving God. And so a couple of things for you, younger worshiper, this morning. First... I want you to be able to answer this question at the end of the sermon. What does unclean mean? Unclean. Now, it sounds a bit like, you know, when you go outside and you play and you get dirty and you've not showered yet. It's more than that, okay? What does it mean to be unclean? It's a concept that's very important in this text, And parents, grandparents, use the time throughout the sermon to talk to these younger worshipers through these questions. Secondly, secondly, I want you to look for this. What happens to Cornelius, a man named Cornelius, and the others who are in his house as Peter is preaching to them? I mean, it happens suddenly. Peter is preaching, and then something happens. It startles Peter, even as he tells the story in Acts chapter 11. Doubtless it startles everyone else. And they make statements like this. Even to the Gentiles, God has done this. So what is it? What happens while Peter is preaching? What happens to Cornelius and to those who are gathered in his house? By the way, if you gather in a community group this evening, uh, we have begun including these younger worshiper questions in community group discussion guides. You may take the opportunity, community group leaders, no pressure, just opportunity. You may take the opportunity to spend some time gathering the children around and asking these questions and including them as a part of the discussion together on Lord's Day evenings. Again, no pressure, just a suggestion. All right? Well, let's begin by stating the problem together. What is the problem? We'll state it and then unpack it. Here's the problem. Gentiles or non-Jews, right? There are two kinds of people in the world of first century Judaism. There are Jews and everybody else. Jews and Gentiles or Jews and the nations. Here's the problem. Gentiles are unclean. And therefore... Separated from God and his people. Gentiles are unclean and therefore are separated from God and separated from God's people. This undergirds the entire story and the narrative of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Now to make sense of this text and this problem, one must understand the meaning of of unclean. Another word, by the way, that's used in the text is common. For something to be unclean or for something to be common. What does it mean for something to be unclean? It's really quite simple. It means to be unacceptable to God. Unacceptable to God. And we can even take it, take it a step further. For something to be unclean is for it to be unacceptable to God and inappropriate for use by God's people. And there are various rituals and instructions throughout the Old Testament that deal with demarcating those things that are clean from those things that are unclean or those things that are holy and sanctified from those things that are common. But all of these rituals and all of these laws point us to this fundamental distinction between what is clean and what is Unclean what is acceptable to God and appropriate in the midst of God's people and what is unacceptable to God and inappropriate among God's people. Now glance down at Acts chapter 10, verse 14, where Peter responds to the Lord's instruction to eat the animals in the vision. And we'll get to that vision here in just a moment. But in response to this vision of a sheet coming down from heaven, with a collection of unclean animals on it, that is, animals that were not to comprise the diet of God's people, Israel. Here's what Peter says in response to the command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord. And he goes on to say, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I've been a good Jew my whole life. I've never, never broken your law in this respect. Doubtless was raised in a home where they only ate the foods that were considered appropriate among God's people or clean. But here God says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. We'll come back to that. But this text is not primarily about unclean food. So just right out of the gate, you need to know this. It's not primarily about unclean food. It's about unclean people. In fact, the people really are represented In various ways in the vision that Peter receives. Look with me at Acts chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 where we're introduced to a person who represents a people who are unclean. Acts chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So Luke introduces us to this man named Cornelius who happens to be a Roman centurion which just means a leader of approximately 100 Roman soldiers. Some Uh, Some have argued that there were different levels of even centurion. Perhaps there were more soldiers under his leadership. But at least 100 Roman soldiers were under his direction. There are several truths we can glean from the description Luke provides of this man named Cornelius. However, most germane for our purposes and those of Luke's purpose is this. Cornelius was a Gentile. Cornelius was a Gentile. It's that simple. He was not a Jew. From the Jewish perspective, since God had uniquely chosen the Jewish people or Israel to carry his name, the Gentiles were considered in this category unclean or common, unacceptable to God. And as a result, you see, you could not be a Gentile and a member of God's Household, you could become a member of God's household. How? By essentially becoming a Jew, primarily through circumcision. You couldn't just be a Gentile in the broader cultural Gentile identity and then come into God's people, be a member of God's household through faith, as it were, in first century Judaism. Oh, no. No, no, you had... He had to go through a process of essentially becoming Jewish and embracing these identity markers, as it were, what it meant fundamentally to be a Jew. And even still, by the way, even still there is discussion about uh, the suspicion among some of the Jewish leaders for those who decided to be practicing Jews as Gentiles but look with me, if you would, at verse 28. Look at verse 28, and you get a picture here. We're jumping around a bit, I know, because it's so much text. Acts chapter 10, I should have clarified. Verse 28, We get a picture of the Jewish posture in relationship to Gentiles, non-Jews. Peter says to Cornelius and those gathered in his home, these words, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. I'm not supposed to be here. As a Jew, because you see, you're unclean, and as a Jewish person, I'm clean. I'm acceptable to God. If I show up in your house, I run the risk of becoming unclean. Your problem might rub off on me. This is just common perception among the Jewish people, in particular the Jewish leaders. In the first century, Jews were not to gather in Gentile homes. Now, by the way, there were times when a Jew could have a Gentile into his house. But you see, then he could control the environment so as to keep from becoming unclean. But what a Jew could not do was to go into the home of a Gentile. And certainly what a Jew was not to do was to share table fellowship with a Gentile to sit down and meal with Gentiles or to closely associate with Gentiles. Now, Cornelius was not your run-of-the-mill Gentile. And Luke tells us this. Notice the description of him in verse 2. We read it a moment ago. Verse 2, he's described as a devout man who feared God with all his household. You see that? And one who gave alms generously to the people, that is the Jewish people, and prayed continually to God. So Cornelius was what some scholars refer to as a God-fearer, as a God-fearer. And this this category has been debated among scholars, but there's a general consensus that this category of God-fearer was a way of describing a Gentile person who had embraced many of the practices of Judaism. Judaism. With one exception, they were uncircumcised. I don't miss this. So Cornelius was someone who sought to obey God's instruction in what we call now the Old Testament. He would have called it, they called it merely the Scriptures. So he sought to obey the Lord in the scriptures. He even gave alms to the Jewish people to support the Jewish people. He was fond of the Jewish people. In fact, we find out later in chapter 11, he was known among many of the Jewish people and was admired among the Jewish people. However, he was not circumcised, which means he had not fundamentally become a Jew. He's still unclean. He's still a Gentile. That's how he's Perceived by many in the first century. And a brief aside may prove helpful here. This brief aside is this. Through the coming of Christ, church family, we have learned that it was not merely the Gentiles who were unclean or unacceptable to God. That's really where some of the Jewish leaders, and I'm saying the Jewish leaders because this is how in the book of Acts we we face off with these particular religious leaders who are opposing Jesus and the church. They're the ones actually taking the lives of God's people. They're the ones pictured often as crucifying Jesus in his life. By means of his death, of course. What we find actually through the coming of Jesus Christ is what these Jewish leaders missed That humanity really is not divided into two categories of people, the clean and the unclean. That actually all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, exist in the same category. Unclean. Unacceptable to God. And and not qualified to be among God's people. For example, Romans chapter 3 verse 9. Romans 3, verse 9, just to build a little biblical context for us, the apostle Paul, who, by the way, was an ethnic Jew. We've been introduced to him in the book of Acts as Saul. Later on, he'll be referred to as Paul. Paul says this in Romans 3, verse 9, What then are we Jews any better off? That is, any better off than the Gentiles? How does he answer the question? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. What God was doing throughout the old covenant as he was giving various instructions for distinguishing between clean food and unclean food, clean animals and unclean animals, being a ritually cleansed or clean person and being a ritually unclean person. What he was doing actually was showing us something that really does get more closely to our constitution, to who we are. After Genesis 3, he was showing us that we have a fundamental problem, whether we're Jew or Gentile. And that fundamental problem is that our sins have so marred us and stained us that they have left us unacceptable to a holy God. And God mercifully, actually, graciously provided avenues through which his chosen people could come to him, but they never really took care of the problem. They pointed, rather, to the final solution of the problem, who, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. But don't miss this. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, as we make our way through the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, everyone is under sin. And as a result, unclean, unacceptable to God. But going back to our problem, we've stated it in this way in the text. Gentiles, non-Jews, are unclean and therefore separated from God and his People, let's state the solution and walk through the text to see this solution unfold together. Here's the solution to the problem we find in Acts chapter 10. In Christ, unclean people are made clean. In Christ, unclean people are made clean. Clean. There are two characters in the story of Acts chapter 10 and 11 who are primary, and these characters are Peter, the apostle Peter, and Cornelius. Luke begins by telling us about a vision God granted Cornelius around 3 p.m. one day. and In this vision, an angel called to Cornelius by name, and by the way, this frightened Cornelius we read in the text. Can you imagine that? Imagine 3 3 o'clock p.m., you see a vision and you hear your name and then before you stands an angel of God, I would submit to you, you would likely be frightened as well. I certainly would be. So Cornelius is frightened, and let's pick up the story at verse 4. This is Acts 10, verse 4. Look with me as we walk through this solution. And he stared at him, that is Cornelius stared at the angel in terror, and said, what is it, Lord? And the angel said to him, your prayers? And your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Tremendous language. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, remember, what was Cornelius, a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Gentile. You know what this meant? It meant he had no part in the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, which, in other words, was a way of saying, by the way, you belong out here. You cannot come close to the presence of God. Cornelius was a Gentile. This also means that there were no sacrifices offered in the temple on behalf of Cornelius. None. But the language that God uses in the text, namely of prayers and alms ascending as a memorial before God, that's temple language. Interestingly, what would happen when God's people, through the priests, offered sacrifices? Well, the smoke would ascend as what the Old Testament will call a pleasing aroma before God on behalf of his people. And then God mercifully and graciously granted his kindness to his people. Well, here, here, notice what God is actually doing. God is saying, that he is mercifully regarding Cornelius' prayers and alms as a kind of substitute for the temple. In fact, in fact, if you've been with us, this gets, this gets far afield, and I'm going to try not to get too far afield, okay? So we're here right now, just to remind me. I'll lean on the, on the podium to remember to get back to the text. But you may recall that there has been some controversy surrounding the temple in the book of Acts. And consistently, God has demonstrated that actually, fundamentally, the temple is Christ and the body of Christ, the church, right? So Christ has become the temple, God's dwelling place, and then everyone who is trusted in Christ and is in Christ Jesus, him or herself, actually now serves as the temple of God. Well, here, as Cornelius is being grafted in by God's mercy, as we're going to see Here, Cornelius' own household is, in some respects, being described as a kind of temple. Your prayers and your alms have ascended, as it were, like a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Not because there's any merit in Cornelius, but out of sheer mercy from the living God. It's the same way with an animal sacrifice. There was nothing inherent in the sacrifice that granted forgiveness. It was merely God's mercy and the mercy that he placed on his people and granted through these sacrifices, actually. This is where they found their hope. And so it is with Cornelius. So God instructed Cornelius to send men to Peter who was staying in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. As we move along the story, and uh, so Cornelius does that. He sends, he sends a few people to go to Joppa, where Peter is staying. And time and time again, we're told that Peter's staying with Simon the Tanner. There are details in the text. We, I love asking the question, why is this detail in the text? Why, why are we told a few times that Peter is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner? Well, because tanners were people whose vocation was to be in consistent contact with dead animals. Which meant, by the way, they were consistently what? Unclean. God's setting the stage, isn't he? He's moving Peter along and he's moving a Jewish church along to understand what is God doing? He's breaking down this distinction between the clean and the unclean, between the Jew and the Gentile. So Luke thinks it's very important that we understand the apostle Peter, even before he understood, was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. Just a bit of a detail for us. So as the three men sent by Cornelius were traveling, God visited Peter. We've been through kind of broadly Cornelius' vision. Now God visits Peter in a vision. Look with me at verses 11 through 16, if you would, where Luke details Peter's vision. So Peter saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And as this great sheet is descending from heaven, verse 12, in it or on it were all kinds of animals. And reptiles, birds of the air. And then there came a voice. There came a voice from heaven saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time as a kind of rebuke. What God has made unclean, rather what God has made clean, excuse me, do not call common Verse 16, this happened three times, and then the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, you may remember that God had regulated, I mentioned a moment ago, he had regulated the diet of his people, the Jewish people, under the Old Covenant. There were certain animals, again, certain animals they could eat, called clean animals. Other animals they were not to eat, called unclean animals. And the animals on the sheet in Peter's vision, the sheet that is descending, being lowered down from heaven, The animals on the sheet were all unclean, presumably. This is why Peter responds in the way he does. But pay particular attention to verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. In other words, God is doing something new, Peter. This is a pivot. It was foreshadowed. It was prophesied. This is consistent with God's word throughout the old covenant, but but now he's, he's bringing this to fruition. God is now declaring the unclean clean. You see? He's now declaring the common holy. He's laying claim on all the earth. He was making the unacceptable acceptable. Now there's some discussion about whether this has anything to do with the elimination of the dietary restrictions in the new covenant, right? So for example, I am someone who grateful to God enjoys bacon. I don't eat a lot of pork, but when I'm, when I'm asked, you know, I so saw, I hear you don't like pork much. I always do need to caveat that I usually don't accept bacon. I enjoy bacon. Well, Bacon was proscribed among God's people throughout the Old Covenant. And it's my understanding and the understanding of of much of the church throughout church history consistent with the New Testament that what happens to the coming of Jesus Christ is some of these instructions actually give way to fulfillment in Christ in such a way that you no longer actually have to abide by the precise instruction of the law. And so passages like Mark chapter 7, for example, or Romans chapter 14 demonstrate that in Christ Jesus there, there is no more dietary restriction as it were. You may choose to restrict your diet, but God is not doing that for his people or on his people. And so some argue, well, maybe this has something to do with God eliminating the dietary restrictions in the new covenant. I think this This is part of it, but I I don't think it really gets at what is primary because I think the dietary restrictions really finally served as a picture of the separation that God intends his people to have from the things that characterize the world. Now, what became of those is a separation of ethnicity, being a, an ethnic Jew from being someone who is not an ethnic Jew. But it really did fundamentally point to God's people being distinct from, separated from, as we said in our confession through First John chapter 2, the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, right? The boastful pride of life and so forth. I think fundamentally, actually, what's taking place in the text is not so much an elimination of the dietary restrictions, though it's a part of it. I think what's happening is a focus on the breaking down of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so after Peter traveled to the house of Cornelius, he declared... This message that he had been preaching. So Peter goes after these visions take place. Peter's seen a vision, Cornelius' has seen a vision. These people came to Peter. He goes with them to Cornelius' household. And when he arrives there, he declares the same message that he's been declaring throughout the book of Acts to the Jewish people. It's really the same message that he proclaims. He declares that God had anointed Jesus who ministered throughout the areas of Galilee and Judea, healing and doing good to all. The Jewish leaders put Jesus to death through crucifixion. However, God miraculously and powerfully raised Jesus Christ from the dead in fulfillment of Scripture. And then verse 44, notice with me. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. As Peter is declaring all of this, Notice what happens. Luke writes, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Mid-sermon, the Spirit of God falls on this collection of Gentile people. Now, if you've been with us, you know Acts chapter 2, this has already happened, but it wasn't on the Gentiles. It was on Jewish Christians. Acts chapter 2 is often referred to as Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God's people, Jewish people were gathered together. And in fulfillment of the promise of Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on this gathering of Jewish believers. And so the church is is endowed with and filled with the Holy Spirit. But here, in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, here God pours out his spirit, not on the Jewish people, but on the Gentiles. And that's what's significant about what is taking place in the text. In fact, when Peter recounted this story in order to defend his association with the Gentiles in Acts 11, we read this a moment ago, He says this in verse 17 of Acts chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them, that is to the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? God in Christ is making the unclean clean. He's making the unacceptable clean acceptable. And he's doing all of this through the ministry of Jesus Christ, who according to Peter died on the cross in place of those who were unclean, was buried, and was raised in glorious power from the dead. So let's come full circle. We've We've observed together that there is indeed a problem and we've stated the problem in this way. Gentiles are unclean and therefore separated from God and his people. And then we found broadly a solution to this problem. The solution is in Christ Jesus, unclean people are made clean. So let's take a step back now and ask the question about Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. How is it that this applies to our faith and lives this Lord's Day morning? Let me give you three, three ways this text applies to us right here at First Baptist Church in Powell, Tennessee this morning. First, recognize that you are unclean before God. Recognize that you are unclean before God. Friends, we come into this world unacceptable to God. We come into this world tainted by our sin. As Isaiah the prophet described, our best works Okay, remember, Isaiah is even describing the people of Israel. The best works Israel has to offer, apart from the grace of God in Christ, Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The late Tim Keller would often say something like this the gospel informs us that we are far more sinful than we ever dared believe. We are far more sinful than we ever dared believe. And then he would go on to say, and we are far more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared imagine. We are far more sinful than we ever dared believe. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not, hey, you're not as bad as you thought you were. The good news of the gospel is not, hey, the good news is you are pretty bad, but God is incredibly lenient. I mean, he's more like a benign grandpa who loves to just overlook things that we do and just feed us candy bars sometimes. Sorry, grandpa, I said benign grandpa, stereotypical grandpa, right? No, no, I, I'm recalling actually um, the words of, of my pops, um, who's no longer with us. But when I had kiddos, my pops would say from time to time, you know, he was a very strict man, and I'm grateful to God for his leadership in my life. But he would say to us, and we would send the kiddos over there, hey, you know, I'd say, pops, why didn't you, why didn't you correct this? He'd always tell me, I'm a grandpa now, <laughs> right? I'm a grandpa. I spoil them, and then what do I do with them? I send them back. He loved he loved telling me that. No no, God isn't just overlooking our sins. He's He's not lenient, as it were, in relationship to our sins. So no, the gospel actually declares, first, you are far worse off. I am far worse off than I could even imagine. But the good news is God is far more gracious and merciful than we dare dream. And he has done something decisively about our sin by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty a sufficient penalty for sinners. So you see, God is not simply overlooking. No, no, he deals head on with our sin through the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So first, recognize that you are unclean before God. And secondly, be cleansed through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, right? Finally, there's bad news, of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, but we get to good news, which is what gospel means. We are unclean and unacceptable before God, but we are made, first declared acceptable and then progressively made acceptable through the merits of Jesus Christ. So no matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, No matter where you're from, you see Christ offers you complete restoration to God as a member of his household. And Cornelius is a life-giving reminder that we don't have to become something we are not in order to be accepted by God as one of his children. Now, don't miss that. No, no, we don't have to become something first and then God accepts us. God mercifully extends the merits of Jesus Christ to us and embraces us as one of his own. And then, of course, of course, part of the good news of the gospel is he doesn't leave us in the condition out of which he rescues us. But then he begins to progressively and graciously transform us into the image and character of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of Christianity. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to learn more about what it might mean to trust in Jesus, to be freely accepted on account of what Christ has done for you, not on account of what you offer to God in Christ. If you'd like to talk more about this or perhaps even you think for the very first time, you're trusting in Jesus Christ this morning we would love to talk with you after service stick around for a few moments and as you leave one of these double doors in the back take a left and that room out there called crossroads that I mentioned as we began our service this morning go in there and have a conversation with us so that we can come alongside of you and you potentially alongside of us as we learn to trust in and treasure Jesus Christ through whom unclean people are made clean Finally, I mentioned to you I had three applications. Finally, in addition to recognizing that you are unclean and being cleansed in Christ Jesus, church family, take the cleansing message of Christ to all people. Take the cleansing message of Jesus Christ to all people, to the Corneliuses of the world. Invite them to become full members of God's household, but not on account of what they bring, on account of what Christ offers. This is what drives us to go to Powell, Tennessee. This is what drives us to go to our neighbors. This is what drives us to go to our family members. This is what takes us and motivates us to go throughout Knox County and Tennessee and America and the world. That God has finally, finally, materialized reconciliation for us through Christ for all people who trust in. Jesus Christ. Well, we began this morning with a problem. All of us are unclean and therefore separated from God and his people. Second, we discovered the solution. In Christ, unclean people become clean. So, recognize your uncleanness before God. Be cleansed through faith in Christ and take the cleansing message of Christ. To all people, in 1776, Augustus Toplady penned words that beautifully communicate the cleansing message of the gospel we talked about this morning. He wrote this: "Rock of Ages, cleft for me; let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy wounded side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure, safe from wrath." And make me pure. He continued, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, Come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. Thank you for the reminder that we all come into this world Jew and Gentile, unclean and unacceptable to you. Thank you for the call and the invitation afresh in Christ Jesus to be cleansed, to be made clean in Christ Jesus. And thank you again, father, for the call and the commission by the power of your spirit to leave this place and go with the cleansing message of the gospel to every nation, tribe, tribe, and tongue beginning right here in Powell, Tennessee. And so continue your work of cleansing in us and through us on account of Christ. We pray these things together and all God's people said, Amen.